Well, good morning once again. Please turn with me in your copy of Scripture to 1 John chapter 4. Excuse me. Chapter 5. Where we will start with the second half of verse 4. Which I know seems very odd, but just let it happen, okay? John writes about this victory. He said, this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify. The Spirit, and the water, and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that He has borne concerning His Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe, God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning His Son. And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. The main point here being that God Himself has testified that His Son became incarnate and atoned for sin so that we might have life through faith. God Himself has testified that His Son became incarnate and atoned for sins so that we might have life through faith. I mentioned last time that the previous section ends in the first part of verse 4, and that's primarily because now John is going to shift away from the love theme that we have heard over and over again And he is going to move on to overcoming the world by faith in the Son of God. So remember the first part of verse 4. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Now you're going to be able to, I think, discern a shift here. He says, and this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. So notice this past tense here that has overcome the world. The world. It's something that has already happened where faith is the instrumental means by which it happens. This is the only time, interestingly, in all of John's epistles or his gospel that the noun faith occurs. There's a lot about believing, but this is the only time it's just faith is right here. Uh, It shows up just like this in its noun form, and it is simply the instrumental means by which we have overcome the world, which is, of course, a bit paradoxical. Because if you remember that overcoming language, that Nike language, Nike sounds like in order to achieve something like that, you know, you're gonna, it's going to require an enormous amount of effort, tremendous amount of doing. But in this kind of overcoming and victory, Our victory is because someone else had victory. 
and has someone else has overcome the world, and that is Christ in whom that we have in whom we have faith. We overcome the world. We have overcome the world through faith. Faith in whom? The Son of God, who is greater than he who is in the world and who himself has overcome the word world. Therefore, those who have faith have overcome the world. That's that's how it works out there. And thus, this victory belongs to a very exclusive class of people, doesn't it? Not surprisingly, it belongs to those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God, which is the subject of the next verse. Again, an unfortunate split in your ESV there. And we you know, kind of get the bold subtitle, but you're going to see that this is who we're going to continue to talk about here. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? But we also, before we move on to say, who is this? Because John's going to talk about it in a second. We should pause to say, this is a, an implicit reference to Christian exclusivism, isn't it? Meaning, Christianity is the only path to life. We're going to see it one more time in this passage. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Meaning, if you do not believe that Jesus is the Son of God, you are not going to overcome the world. That is a very specific commitment. It's not believing in God, that there is a God, that God loves people generally. If you do not believe that Jesus is the Son of God, as John has laid it out, which includes his Messianic ministry, you are not someone who has overcome the world. And insofar as you continue in that lack of belief, you will not, in fact, overcome the world. An overcoming that happens because of an overcoming that happened by another. Who is who is this Jesus? This is He, verse 6, who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. And so we arrive at maybe two dozen or so passages in the New Testament that are extremely controversial. What exactly does this mean? Because there has been so much ink spilled, thousands and thousands of pages spilled, about this particular verse, and really this, this cluster of verses, I want to be very careful about how I go about explaining it so that we walk away with what is clear, all right, and not focusing on what is not clear about it. I want to walk away having a firm grasp on what is clear and then make some suggestions about what is not clear. First, as we engage in this mirror reading of the text like we have throughout 1 John, trying to recreate the original situation based off what's being said, understanding that it isn't just being spoken randomly into a vacuum, but in response to certain things and trying to put that together behind the scenes, it seems that John is very clearly pushing back against something that's being said, something that's being taught about Jesus, presumably by these secessionists who have gone out from John's community. And what he seems to be pushing back against is this water-only gospel, this water-only Jesus. He affirms that Jesus did come by water, but not by water alone. And so we're going to talk about the symbols in a second, 
But even if we were left in utter mystery, okay, even if we were left in utter mystery about the symbols here, we could still walk away knowing that John is pushing back against an understanding of the coming of Christ that is horrifically distorted because it's incomplete. Okay? Even if we didn't have anything else to say about the symbols, we could know that John is pushing back against an understanding of the coming of Christ that is horrifically distorted because it is incomplete. We can know that, certainly. The second thing that we can know uh, with certainty, I believe, is that the blood is a reference to Christ's atoning death at the very end of his life. On this particular fact, there's very little disagreement. Of course, there's disagreement about everything, but there's not a ton of disagreement about this. The only other time that blood is even mentioned for example, in 1 John is in chapter 1, verse 7. And everyone remembers the verse. If we walk in the light as he's in the light, we'll have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. It's wrapped up with the atonement of Christ. And as we've discussed multiple times, for John, the idea of the coming of Christ cannot be simply isolated to God taking on flesh, but is really shorthand for the entire messianic mission including his bloody and atoning death. I think it's the second thing that we can uh, be confident about, that the blood is a reference to his atoning death at the end of his ministry. The third thing about which, I, I don't, I, I'm not, we can't be certain about this, but I think it is highly likely. Uh, what I think is highly likely is that given how the Spirit's role is clarified in the back part of the verse, and it is the, the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth, um, as well as uh, the fact that John's audience is getting assaulted by those who seem to claim that they're having a heightened experience with the Spirit. We see this in 2.20. He tells his audience, you've been anointed by the Holy One, we hear in uh, chapter 4 that you need to discern the spirits because what seems to have happened is that those who have gone out from them are appealing to the same Jesus tradition, but they are interpreting it very, very differently. And they are claiming that the spirit is really the real deal. The spirit is the main figure in all of this. Okay, The spirit is the one who descended on Jesus, who enabled a ministry of exorcisms, and miracles, who Jesus gave up his spirit at the cross. It's the spirit that, that, that was promised to, to be present with the church afterwards as a helper. And so it is the spirit who develops our understanding of what actually happened back there. And so I think that because of this different understanding of Jesus in light of the spirit, you have this tension that is seeping in, and we're going to see how it is particularly related to water in just a second. But I think with those three realizations, we have a foundation to try to make some very, very educated guesses about what's going on here. So just to recap, a horrifically incomplete version of Christ and his work, blood being a reference to atoning death that the secessionists seem to think maybe was not necessary, not necessary for them anymore because they were sinless. It's not entirely clear and a misunderstanding of the Holy Spirit's role, okay? I think we can have confidence about those three things that John is, has addressed already in the letter and is likely addressing here. That gives us a foundation to stand on 
as we try to work out this water blood vocabulary. And now is just as, as good as time as any to say it. We are laboring under a challenge that the original audience didn't have. And that is, we just don't know that there's the original audience would not have been confused about what's being referenced here. We're like water and blood, water only. Like, what, what on earth? What, what does this mean? Well, this, this, they would have heard this. They would have been very clear. Yeah, of course. Yeah, they're saying the water alone. Yeah, they get it. We've not, that context hasn't been preserved for us. So, so we have to do the best we can through a mirror reading of the text and with some humility in our interpretation to reconstruct that and try to make heads or, heads or tails of it. The largest debate centers around exactly what it means to say that Jesus came by water. What exactly does that mean? Suggestions are not hard to come by. One suggestion, water refers to the birth of Jesus, the amniotic fluid, which would have looked like water, which would imply a reference to him uh, as someone who is truly human. And so him coming in water and blood communicates that, that he worked uh, in his life and died a legitimate in a legit, with a legitimate human nature. That's kind of the idea. The second one uh, is that the water refers to the baptism of Jesus himself by John the Baptist. Uh, again, when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, you have the Spirit descending as a dove. You have the Spirit empowering Je Jesus' ministry. Jesus gives up his Spirit in a bloody atonement. And so the waters of baptism here refer to excuse me, the reference to water here refers to Jesus' baptism by John the Baptist, which is totally tied up with the Spirit. Okay? Another suggestion is that the water doesn't refer to Jesus getting baptized, but to Jesus' ministry of baptism itself. Early on in John, we hear reference to Jesus and the disciples baptizing. Later, it's clarified that Jesus didn't baptize anybody. It was the disciples. But nevertheless... And for whatever theological nightmares it might create for you, pre-Christian baptism that also isn't John the Baptist's baptism. Like, what is it? After the resurrection, do those folks have to get rebaptized? What what exactly is what exactly is going on there? The disciples' baptism of folks, not John's baptism, before atonement, before resurrection. Don't come ask me about it, okay? But it could be that it's a reference not to Jesus being baptized but to the, his, his baptizing ministry. Some take the water and the blood language to be a reference to the stuff that humans were made out of. So this would be similar to the first one. There's some first century and even prior understandings that humans were made of, you know, constituted of water and blood. And so this would be saying that he came as a genuine human being. And then finally, there's some sacramental understandings that I'm not even going to give the time of day to because I think they're just total speculation that connect this particular verse to uh, baptism in the local church and the Lord's Supper and then and Jesus's blood and the Eucharist and, and uh, that I, I don't think get off the ground. Well, let me just mention that the challenge with understanding the reference to water as the amniotic fluid in his birth, and it's a similar challenge that accompanies the water and blood 
to, uh, understood as, well, this just means that he's a legitimate human being, is that John already has introduced very clear and very well-worn vocabulary for saying that God the Son took on skin, and that is, he says, flesh. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, both in his gospel and in the prologue to John. He already has that vocabulary. Okay, if he's talk, when he's trying to describe the Son of God truly becoming human, he uses the word flesh. It's not at all clear why he would change to something else that's far more nebulous. And that doesn't have any further clarification. But even maybe more than that, both parties agree that Jesus came by water. Okay, but if that's supposed to just be a testament to his true humanity, that's the very thing that these secessionists didn't agree on. Okay, they did not agree that Christ had come full-bodied in the flesh. Okay, that's the very thing that they challenged. And so I don't think that either the water and blood is what constitutes human beings, or the water is just he was he, he was had a human birth. I don't think that those are altogether compelling suggestions. Uh, the problem with suggesting that it is a reference to Jesus's ministry of baptism is it's just not clear. To, that that's relevant to anything in the whole letter, or that that was anything that the secessionists were harping on, it's just not clear what that has to do with anything. It is, it is, and, and certainly it's not even clear what was going on, frankly, in the discipleship, uh, in the baptism ministry of the disciples prior to the death and resurrection of Jesus. Certainly they were being baptized into following Jesus. Theologically, it leads us with a bit, uh, with quite a few questions. But this doesn't seem to be anywhere present in the text, and there's no reason to think that the secessionist, you know, it just, it just doesn't fit. And so, with all difficulties aside, and with certainly with interpretive humility in mind, I do strongly favor Jesus coming by water and blood in the first part of verse 6 as a hendiadis, I'll explain what that is in one second, that indicates the whole of Jesus' public ministry of the Messiah beginning with his baptism as it imparted the Holy Spirit and ending with his atoning sacrifice where he gave up his spirit with the promise that the Spirit would come be the helper. That's what we read about in our scripture readings, didn't we? That the Spirit would come after him. Um, what is a hendiatus? What do I mean here when I say, this is he who came by water and blood? A hendiatus is when you use two different words, but that communicate a singular concept. So let me give you an example my wife likes to be nice and warm. Okay? Shanti is someone who thrives when she is nice and warm. Now, if you tried to explain that to someone by explaining what the word nice meant and then what the word warm meant, you would be misleading somebody. Because nice and warm are two different words, but when they are used together, they communicate kind of one singular truth. And cozy, um, whatever. Okay? And so, and even worse, if you were to say something like, well, this person likes to be nice and warm, and you, and you quoted them as saying, well, they said that they just like to be nice. They like being a nice person. You see how that would be an incomplete version of what was said, but it's not just like you left something out, like you totally changed the meaning. Am I right? 
She said she likes to be nice and warm, and I tell you what she said was she, she likes to be nice. Okay? It total, it's not just incomplete. It's incomplete in a way that is redefining what is being communicated. And that's what I'm suggesting is going on here. When he clarifies that Jesus did not come by water only, he's splitting up the Hendaitis to show the error of the folks proclaiming this falsehood. A water-only Jesus, then, is really not a Jesus at all. And so similarly, and I would say particularly in conjunction with how large of a role the Spirit has played in 1 John and how closely associated the Spirit is with water in John's Gospel. You remember John 4, the woman at the well, hey, give me this water, give me this water you know, after which I'll never thirst again. In John chapter 7, the living water that he mentions is explicitly identified with the Spirit. Uh, I'm suggesting that these heretics have misunderstood the water symbolism in John's tradition. And, 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 and John is saying it's not water alone because what that does is essentially reduce the power and the person and ministry of Christ to the work of the Spirit in His teaching and His miracles. The Spirit ends up being the big deal, as though the water simply reduces to Spirit. That seems to be what John is correcting. It leaves out His atoning death. And what John is saying is, that's not just an incomplete version. That's not a Messiah at all. Okay? Going back to our analogy... So water and blood, when John uses it, is a reference to the totality of Jesus' incarnational ministry. When he separates it out, we can kind of read quotes around the water only, which is like taking nice out of nice and warm. It's not just incomplete. It's incomplete in a way that destroys what's going on. That's what he is saying. The water only Jesus understands the spirit to be the main player, misunderstanding the water symbolism in John's tradition, and then leading, and, and then that misunderstanding leads to many of the problems that we've already seen related to the Spirit in 1 John. So the tools are already there for us to try to explain what's going on here, particularly with when we contrast it with the gospel and how closely associated Spirit is with water. Notice that John can't say that Jesus didn't come by water, because he did. He did. He did. And the, and the, public, and the beginning of Jesus' messianic ministry was very public. And it was through water. And he did the Spirit descend like a dove, and the voice of the Father. I mean, it was, a, it was, it was epic. It was an epic scene. It wasn't some marginal thing that happened. It was... It was epic, and so you have the public ministry beginning with water, and then it ends, of course, on the cross as he sheds his blood. And so then, the Spirit plays an incredibly important role in the ministry of Jesus and in the church giving testimony that he is the risen Son of God. But if you try to reduce the ministry of Jesus to the Spirit, you don't just have an incomplete Jesus, John is saying, you end up with a Jesus that doesn't atone for sin, a water-only, spirit-only Jesus, and that isn't actually the Messiah. That's not having something slightly wrong. It's not having a Christ at all. And so given that, John says this, 
For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. And now we find the most famous and obviously not original textual variant uh, anywhere in the New Testament. The so-called Johannine comma. If anyone is reading from a a KJV, not even a new King James Version, but an original King James Version, you have the Trinitarian proof text that never existed. But it, man, it is a zinger. Listen to this. Listen to how it reads based off some very, very late manuscripts with zero attestation uh, for a thousand years, over a thousand years. There are three that testify, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. It's like, whoo, man, where was that one in all of the Trinitarian controversies in the early church? And the answer, of course, is it didn't exist. It was, it's a, a far later variant. It went it, based off the translations of some of the a manuscript Erasmus found, and it made it into the 1611 version of the King, King James Version of the Bible. I take it that I don't need to say very much more about that. But where water and blood appear without the article at the, at the first part of verse 6, the article meaning the, here it's broken out as a reference to, uh, to emphasize the certainty of God's witness to His own Son. Okay? So the Son was publicly acknowledged and confirmed by the Father at His baptism as the Spirit descended on Him like a dove and remained. He was publicly sacrificed He died an atoning death in fulfillment of explicit promises of the Messiah. And then it is the Spirit who validated and empowered the ministry of Jesus since day one, but who also testifies to us that Jesus is the Son of God who has come in the flesh. In other words, that Jesus is the Messiah. All of these three witnesses are in agreement because they testify to the same thing. They're testifying to the same thing, what God has said about His Son. Okay, so in summary, and I know that was a lot. I understand that was a lot. But, but in summary, what I'm suggesting is that what John's doing here, in line with some of the problematic elements we've already seen in the letter, we've already discussed concerning the folks who have left, is he's clarifying that to accept Jesus as a spirit-empowered teacher and miracle worker only is to, prevent, to pro- really profess no Messiah at all. Okay, It's a Jesus that cannot save because the messianic mission did not involve merely having a spirit-empowered life, but executing the prophetic mission and promises in an atoning death. That is God's testimony. Okay? And so, if we receive the testimony of men, if we're willing to do that, Verse 9, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that He has borne concerning His Son. And so the idea here is twofold, isn't it? The idea here is twofold. One is saying, listen, we believe the testimonies of men all the time. You believe the testimonies of what people say. How much more should you then believe the testimony of God? That's, that's the first thing that's there. This is what God has proclaimed. And he, by the way, he does, he, John does use that three-witness language because you see that ever since you know, the book of Deuteronomy. 
You see, accusations against an elder aren't supposed to be entertained except for two or three witnesses. So what John is trying to do is build this case for who the Son of God is because there are three witnesses to it. Okay? So God is a more faithful witness, but that's not it. In this specific context, there is a focus not just on the fact that God is a more faithful witness, but that he's chosen to, 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 to give a particular kind of witness Three people all witnessing on one very narrow thing, and that is Jesus is the Son of God. Now, I'm not saying that God hasn't testified to other things more generally, but in this specific context, listen to even how it reads. It says, if we receive the testimony of them, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. The idea is like, what God has chosen to bear testimony about isn't like just everything in the world and all the rest. It's this right here, this very focused, very specific, very important fact justified by three witnesses that Jesus is the Messiah and that he is the Son of God. He's the Son of God who has come in the flesh. And if that is what he has publicly proclaimed, then failing to acknowledge that is tantamount to calling God a liar, which is exactly what he says in verse 10. It's exactly what he says in verse 10. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself, but whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. So whoever believes in the Son of God, they have kind of internalized this witness. They've internalized God's witness to his son. But those who do not believe, characteristic of John's dualism here, implicitly or explicitly indict God as a liar. Because when you don't believe testimony like this, it's not like doubting someone's mathematical theorem. It's like telling someone who's, who, who is telling you that they have a headache. No, you don't. No, you don't. It's very difficult how someone could be mistaken about the fact that they, they're experiencing a headache. Very difficult to understand how that could be the case. No, what you're doing, if someone tells you that, you're saying, no, you're a liar. That's what John is saying. To not accept this about the Son of God is calling God a liar. It's not being in the neutral zone. It's not a, adopting you know, epistemic humility to try to just you know, make sure that we're not confident about ourselves. That's not what he's saying. It's calling God a liar. And so he concludes, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son does not have life. And so here we see a great example of two things. Two things. The first is how John uses life and eternal life interchangeably. He does this in his gospel, okay? Does it in his letters. The idea that, and it's so close, you, you, you can't possibly miss it, right? Who, this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his son. That is to say, this eternal life that I just mentioned is in his son. Life and eternal life in John, generally speaking, used interchangeably. But second, as we have also discussed before, the kind of life John's talking about is not just having DNA and a pulse. It is a life in Christ. It is a particular blessed kind of life. It is a kind of life that gives hope. 
that provides purpose, and it's a kind of life that overcomes the world. And even though we will die, yet we will live. That's the kind of life that John's promises. And so very similar to the liar dualism that we just read about, for John, it's, it's very black and white, brothers and sisters. I mean, it's very cut and dry. Very cut and dry. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. That's it. That's John's dualism. And yet we get another very explicit statement of Christian exclusivism. Don't we? Do you have the Son of God as proclaimed by John? As John has teased out what that means, which is Christ, the Messiah. If you do, you have eternal life. If you don't, you don't have eternal life. It doesn't matter how hard you've tried. It doesn't matter what God you believe in. It doesn't matter necessarily what you believe about God. It doesn't matter how... None of it matters. There's only one path to eternal life. And that is through the Son of God as He has been revealed in the flesh in Jesus Christ. That's it. That's the only path. No other paths. Very explicit and very clear. And so... God Himself has testified that His Son became incarnate and atoned for sin so that we might have life through faith. Now thankfully, because of letters like John's, I don't think anyone here is in danger of falling into the heresies of those who left John's community. But like many other things that John has mentioned in his letters, Christians can be tempted towards and are certainly drawn towards the same kinds of sins. And then we need to repent and believe when that happens. But as I was thinking about how to apply this text in particular, while, while nothing came to mind that would be immediately relevant in terms of destroying Jesus, I don't think anyone is that far off base here, we all nevertheless like to emphasize certain parts of Jesus, certain aspects of Jesus, certain versions of Jesus, and I thought that it might be fruitful to explore what those could be. And let me just say, I always give this caveat that leaves people kind of with an open mouth, but it's for a good reason. I think all of us would be a little bit disappointed in Jesus. Why? Tyler, why would you say that? Well, it certainly doesn't have anything to do with Jesus. It has to do with our expectations and our picture of Jesus in our mind. For some of us, Jesus would just be too soft. For some of us, Jesus would just be too hard. For some of us, we just would wish Jesus would answer questions more straightforwardly. For some of us, we just wish Jesus would fill in the blank. And if Jesus were present in the 21st century where everyone gets publicly eviscerated for every view that they have, I think everyone would have some things where they said, yeah, and sometimes Jesus would be like, oh, that's kind of not what I was, what I was hoping for. What are some of those? We have limited time. I can't go through all of the most popular ideas of Jesus. But let me just name a few of them. 
The first is the gentle and lowly Jesus, and it is such a beautiful thing that Jesus is gentle and lowly. It is some of the most precious autobiographical material in the gospel to have a Savior who is gentle and lowly, and yet, like everything, gentle and lowly can be kind of the one facet of the diamond that someone fixates on. The gentle and lowly Jesus. We talked about this when we preached through Daniel, that you can't even understand how amazing it is for Jesus to say that he's gentle and lowly until you understand this mighty, earth-wrecking, Shekinah glory Jesus. A Jesus who, who isn't just someone who is soft and kind of walks around like this. I mean, people have these bizarre ideas sometimes of what gentle and lowly entails. And sometimes it gets separated from the high and mighty king. High and mighty king has to be held right next to gentle and lowly Jesus, or you end up with a kind of a distorted view of Christ. That's one. But what's the opposite of the gentle and lowly Jesus? Oh, it's the table-turning Jesus. This is some people's life verse, it seems. Hardcore. Who cares how people react to us? Jesus said people are going to hate us anyways. There is no need to tactfully engage the world. Tell them that they are going to hell. That they are evil because of their works. And then hope that they ask for you to share the gospel with them. Oh wait. The table turning Jesus people generally don't share the gospel anyways. Um, why is that? There's a hard lineness to it. There's a winning and losing to it. There's a sense of toughness to it. There's a sense of this is what standing for the truth looks like in posture. Not just in conviction. In posture. It looks like presenting hard. It looks like being hardcore. And again, that has to be held together with the gentle and lowly Jesus. And of course, the realization that you and I are not, in fact, Jesus. Okay, just to be clear. But you also have to put this together with the fruit of the Spirit. So Jesus certainly is an example. We, we can't, you cannot get past uh, looking to Jesus as an example. And I'm not saying there's times where stuff getting turned over isn't what needs to happen. Don't hear me saying that. What I'm saying is you can't fixate on just one little portrait of Jesus that scratches your personality itch or your background or your hoorahness. You have to take the whole Jesus as he is. As he is. What about this version of Jesus? This cosmic cuddler Jesus. Let me tell you about cosmic cuddler Jesus. Cosmic Cuddler Jesus offers me emotional and relational elements that I should get from other relationships, but I don't have them. And so I, Jesus serves this role for me. I lay back against his chest and we breathe together. He holds me. He loves me. He's, he's tender towards me. 
He never has anything to say negative about me, definitely. Only positive affirmation that he loves me. He just wants me to look at Christ one more time. There's no rebuke for my sin. There's no hatred of my sin, because that doesn't belong in this kind of arrangement. So I can just feel comfortable. I feel comfortable with Jesus. He's my comforter. Is Jesus a comforter? Of course he is. But Jesus isn't anybody's boyfriend. And Jesus is not uh, there to try to provide certain kinds of feelings and emotions that are designed by God to be found and satisfied elsewhere. And so, but nevertheless, this is the picture for some people. And sometimes it's because of horrible things that have happened in people's lives. I'm not trying to make light of why people desire this version of Jesus. I'm just saying you can't have, you can't have a Jesus who only affirms, who never has a problem with anything that you do. It's just all sweet, and it's all Jesus just holding. What about the impersonal Jesus? I conceive of Jesus like I conceive of the Pythagorean theorem. I know it's true. In fact, I know it's helpful and powerful, but that's about it. I lack this conception of Jesus' earthiness. And Jesus hung out with folks, and guess what? People wanted to hang out with Jesus. Everybody did. Everybody did. It's amazing when you read the Gospels how many folks wanted to hang out with Jesus from every part of society. He was so personal. He was so earthy. He was so relational. But for the person who prefers impersonal Jesus, it's hard for them to have that space because... They're not particularly strong in relationships themselves. It's much easier to have Jesus as a transcendent God. Like they get that. Like thumbs up on Jesus being high and mighty God. But what about the, what about the personal Savior? What about having a personal relationship? What does abiding actually look like? What does it mean when I press in? He was able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Knowing full well, by the way, that he could have exploded out of there any minute. I mean, maybe some people say, I'm not really sure he knows how to sympathize with what I've gone through. And so for me, Jesus is kind of a detached Savior. Helps me get out of the line going to hell and into the line going to heaven. I'm real thankful for it. But it's easier for me to keep Jesus as a salvific idea and not a living, divine person. There are other examples. You can think of yours, perhaps. I don't have enough time to continue on. The messages that we hear about Jesus and our own tendencies to fixate on certain facets of Jesus are different than John's audience, certainly. But our responsibility is still the same. Our responsibility is still the same. I want to conclude with an illustration. 
my daughter, Callie, had some cheap little toy. Let's just say one of them. And, and this thing was supposed to fit together. But I couldn't fit it together very well. And so as I was trying to present it to her as though I had successfully constructed it, you know, I was like, here it is, like holding part of it up against my chest and like holding the front together, you know, this, this thing. And I, what I wanted to do is just be able to hold it out like this, you know, get a firm grasp on it. It was all kind of stick together for me. You know what I mean? But I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. Maybe it was user error. I'm going to go with the fact that it was cheap. Maybe it was both. But, but here's the thing. I'm suggesting that when we come to Christ, when we come to understanding Jesus, we have to be willing to hold a Jesus that doesn't quite fit well in our hands. Like we just, for us, we, we wish we could get it just kind of right here. Like, oh, got it. This firm, smooth stone in my hand. I have my hand all around it. Here it is. And what I'm suggesting in reality is that Jesus, the, the, the swath of his personality and the way that he acted and interacted, I mean, is mind-blowing. And if we're all honest, because of the phenomenon that I think I've tried to demonstrate here, it's hard to put together. It's hard to hold all of what we see about Jesus in the Gospels together. It really is. We can see this one, then we see this one, then we see this one, then we see this one but it's hard for us to kind of put them all together. Just like I was, I just could not kind of really hold all of my daughter's cheap toy together well. But I want to suggest that you and I have to do that. Holding, if you're able to hold Jesus together in a very clean, like super firm grasp, I know what Jesus would say in this scenario, and I know what he would say in this scenario. I know how he would act here, and I can reconcile this and this, and I'm just kind of, I've got it right here. Count me as someone who's suspicious. Count me as someone who's suspicious. I think we have to rest with some tension that you and I, because we are not divine human, uh, 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 we, we, we are not... Uh, we're not the hypostatic union. We're not humanity and divinity together, but without confusion that Jesus defies what we're able to totally get our heads around. But if we're going to do, uh, we're going to do justice to the text of Scripture, we have to be content with holding a Jesus, even if it doesn't fit into our hands uncomfortably, and just say. I want to examine my view. I want the I want the full Jesus, even when it makes me uncomfortable, even when it, when if it rubs me the wrong way because I lean this way or this way on this particular issue or this particular uh, I have this particular personality trait, whatever the case may be. And so that's the challenge. I want to challenge you to just ask: What picture, walking out of this room today, what facet of Jesus does your heart naturally gravitate towards? And where might there need to be some balancing or course correction, even if it means kind of awkwardly holding it together to do justice to the inspired Word of God? Let's pray. God, we are thankful that Jesus came not by water only, but by water and blood. That He came as a Messiah to save and to rescue that he came as someone who was gentle and lowly and as someone who turned over tables. 
out of concern for holiness. That he dined with sinners, but sharply rebuked religious people. That he promised to give rest, but a rest that involved taking up a cross, an instrument of death. And so God, as we try to hold this mosaic together in our minds and do justice to the Jesus of Scripture, we pray that you would give us wisdom and humility. Give us grace, please, to grasp a real Jesus instead of a Jesus that fits more comfortably for us, that checks our boxes, fits into our categories, and lead us to worship over this God-man who we can know truly, even if not comprehensively, and let it stir our souls. We ask in Jesus' name.